Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Chicago. Joined as always by Cole Little. This is Dustin Reese. And Cole, how's your week been so far? It's been good, man. Been good. Been enjoying college basketball. Uh, how about you? I was enjoying college basketball the last couple days, but <laughs> now not so much just because I had no interest in March Madness, and then all of a sudden Duke decided they wanted to play their best basketball of the year, so I kind of got drawn back in only to have COVID say, nope, no more playing for you. Yeah, it's that's a tough situation. I mean, you know, it's, it's just – it's crazy. I mean – it was like the Thursday of conference tournament week last year where you had the crazy scene at the ACC tournament, you know, before the Florida State Clemson game when there was that weird scene when the tournament got canceled and John Swafford gave Florida State the trophy. And now here we are right around a year later and I'm still dealing with it. So. What's kind of ironic with the whole situation, too, is they they actually said this morning that it was one year ago today that Duke voluntarily removed themselves from last year's ACC tournament, meaning they weren't even going to play in the tournament last year. And now a year later, they have no choice but to remove themselves. So I just kind of find it ironic yeah. how one year ago today, basically, they were, the, they were the first team that took themselves out of a conference tournament. Now they're the ones getting taken out by – COVID this year. Right, yeah. And I mean, you know, we talked about this before. You know, Coach K was the most vocal critic, prominent vocal critic of playing this college basketball season. And, you know, I mean, for, for good reason. I mean, and now we see why, you know, they, they tried their best to make it work. But, um, you know, yeah, staying on campus and driving from Durham to Greensboro. But, yeah, like you pointed out to me off air, um, yeah, that Duke's campus is dealing with a pretty bad um, outbreak right now. So, yeah, it's, it's bad luck for him. And the thing that I don't understand, and I don't know if this is just the ACC's policy or what is, Chances are if Duke would have beaten Florida State today, they probably would have somehow snuck into the NCAA tournament, whether it was as a 13 or a 14 seed or what. And after beating Louisville yesterday, they were kind of now on that bubble as to get in. And you have the NCAA yesterday announcing that teams in the NCAA tournament, where if there's like a positive COVID case within the team or whatever, they're still allowed to play in the tournament as long as they have five healthy players. So I'm wondering why that rule did not apply in this situation because they said only one player on the team actually tested positive. So unless that's an ACC type of rule or a program rule itself, I just find it weird how next week when the NCAA tournament is starting that they're going to allow teams to play even if there's like positive cases going around as long as they have five healthy players. Yeah, I mean, I guess the ACC just doesn't want to risk having a pole tournament shut down and – you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure how much of a fight Duke was going to put up. I mean, in, in terms of fighting to be able to play, you know, because obviously this has been a tough year for them anyway. But, 
Yeah, it would have been nice to see that game get played. Um, and, yeah, you have to feel like if they had beaten Florida State that there was a good chance they would get in just based on, you know, talent alone because um, that would have been a, a big-time win. I know Joe Lenardi had said they probably had to win the whole thing. I'm, I don't – I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I'm definitely not a bracketologist, but um, – It's not the case at all because I was looking at – top 25 rankings the other day and when was the last time you had an eight loss team sitting inside the top 25 let alone the top 10 there's a couple teams inside the top 10 that have five or six losses where on a normal year five or six losses you're going to struggle just to finish the season ranked in the top 25 yeah i mean i think it's fair to say they probably needed one signature win which you know louisville who which is a sort of a bubble team itself wasn't really a signature win. Obviously Boston college wasn't, but yeah, if they had beaten Florida state to give them that one signature win in Greensboro, who knows, but, um, you know, just, you'll just have to wait till next year, man. <laughs> Crazy. We'll technically go two straight years without seeing Duke and an NCAA tournament. Right. And then you got teams like Notre Dame where, they went through basically the entire month of February without winning a game, take away that the two wins early in the month against Duke and Miami, but then the rest of February was a struggle. And then they came away with probably their biggest win in, I would say, the last five years when they went and beat upset Florida State at home by 10. They survived Wake Forest by three at home and then just – or three at Greensboro on Tuesday before getting absolutely decimated by North Carolina last night. I mean, both of us figure that Notre Dame season was over unless they won the ACC, but given the way they played against Florida State to end the season, I'm not surprised they lost to North Carolina per se. I'm just surprised they lost as bad as they did considering the fight they put up against Florida State just a week before that. Yeah, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, they had an epic come uh, come back against Wake Forest and then one on a, a buzzer beater by Trey Wirtz, a deep three. Um, but they were losing handily late in that game, but were able to pull off a, a comeback bid. And that was coming off their big upset win against Florida State over the weekend, um, their first win over a ranked opponent since 2017, which is pretty unbelievable for a program of, Notre Dame stature, but yeah, then it's getting completely demolished by North Carolina. I think it's fair to say North Carolina wanted to put to bed any idea that they might still be a bubble team, um, which that pretty much did. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, the good news for Notre Dame is it looks like they're going to get a lot of players back next year. Um, can maybe take advantage you know, of – uh, the, the COVID redshirt rule and, and whatnot. But, you know, next year might be kind of a make it or break it, make or break season for Mike Bray, believe it or not. But, um, you know, it, it's just kind of a weird year for them and that, um, you know, and we'll have to see who they lose. I mean, Juwan Durham's a, a um, graduate senior as is, uh, Nicola Jogo, so we'll have to see if, if they can come back. But they'll have a lot of players back. But, um, you know, next season will be a pivotal year for Notre Dame basketball, I think, because they've been in the midst of kind of a tough stretch. 
I think next year could be one of those years where a lot of people want to say the quality of college basketball was down this year. And a lot of that I think has to do with obviously COVID and so many teams not having that summer session that they usually have to get familiar with each other. But then on the flip side, you're going to have, I think next year could be possibly one of the more competitive and one of the best college basketball seasons in quite some time, because you're going to have all those incoming freshmen coming in next year. Then you're going to have a lot of the players that were freshmen this year that are probably sticking around because they didn't get the draft stock that they expected to get and things like that. So many of these teams that typically are we're going to be unloading talent this year are going to just be stockpiling talent with another class coming in next year. Even if Mike Bray does have a make or break year next year, I still think he could be out of a job next year just because even if the results are better, is it going to matter when the rest of the ACC might possibly be like what the Big Ten was this year? Yeah. Yeah, you have a point. I mean, I like to think he'll, you know, as long as he's been there, he won't get fired during the COVID, you know, after the COVID season. So I'm sure I, I have to feel like he'll be back next season. But, um, yeah, it's a it's going to be a big year for Notre Dame because, again, for a program of that status to go, you know, what, three years and four months because the last time they had beaten a ranked team prior to the Florida State win was November of 2017. So, I mean, that's a long time to go for a, for a program like Notre Dame. Um, but, yeah, it's just, you know, they, they've – had a hard time hanging on to some leads and some into some games that really could have helped them when stay alive in the bubble in their bubble bid and um um and you know now it appears their season is is over after getting crushed by North Carolina. And oddly enough, you know, we were talking about how DePaul was just waiting for their season to be over and sure thing they go and win their first game of the Big East tournament so now they're alive to possibly maybe surprise a couple teams in that tournament. I don't see them beating UConn tonight, but at least it was a good win for them against, I mean, a team that you're not obviously going to say Providence is a great team, but it was still a good win for DePaul considering the type of season they had. And if their season ends tonight, which I'm pretty sure it's going to at this point, at least they can take away that win against Providence and probably build on that heading into next year. Yeah, two choke jobs by Big East bubble teams last night. Xavier and Providence both really needed a win. Um, they're very much on the bubble. Xavier blew a huge lead to Butler and lost in overtime. And Providence never really had much of a lead against DePaul. DePaul controlled most of the game. Um, so kudos to DePaul. But yeah, to extending their season. Yeah, they played Providence pretty tough in both games in the regular season and we're able to get the better of them last night. So yeah, going to have a tall task ahead of them against UConn, but Hey, good for them. I mean, if anybody deserves to play well and, and, you know, get a impressive upset win in a conference tournament, I think it's DePaul after the really brutal season they had dealing with the late start due to COVID. So um, congratulations to them for that win. Yeah, and I mean, like we were saying, they were the team that we thought was just going to roll over and just kind of pack it up. But here they are fighting for mm -hmm. obviously a very slim NCAA tournament berth. But 
you and I both well know that conference tournaments, anything could happen. And if DePaul can somehow pull off an amazing run here and win the Big East, that's going to be one of those Cinderella stories that they're going to talk about for a long time. Yeah, and I mean, you can't rule it out in this crazy year, you know, especially when you look at Villanova, the top seed, dealing with some injury issues right now. Just lost Colin Gillespie, their star player, for the rest of the season last week and and had another injury to um, a key player, a key guard over the weekend. So, um, and, uh, and Justin Moore. So um, that, that makes it, that makes things a little more interesting in that tournament. So we'll have to see what happens. Exactly. And then the other team that I think surprised us the most, and you and I both talked about this last week. Also, we were talking basically about Illinois and the chances that they were actually going to run the table to finish out the year, go 0-2 and or go 1-1. and And, we both figured they would go one and one. I was completely shocked that they not only went two and zero against Michigan and Ohio State on the road, but the way they absolutely manhandled Michigan in that first game last week, despite being the number one or the number two seed in the Big Ten tournament, they may be the team to beat after the way they finished out their season. Yeah, I mean, I was not expecting them to go two zero on the road like that to close out season. Those are two huge wins. And they beat Michigan without Io DeSumo. He wasn't back yet for that game, their star player, their best player. Um, and they still picked up the win. So, yeah, the, they're certainly looking like the team to beat right now in the Big Ten. Um, obviously in great shape to get a one seed in the big dance. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're just – freakishly talented team you know really well-rounded athletic team and to get those two big wins on the road over Michigan Ohio State to close out the regular season they have plenty of momentum heading into the Big Ten tournament and I'm just going to give you credit on what you called last week how Northwestern started the season uh, yeah. three in the Big Ten play they go and lose everything else and then they go and win the final three games of the year against Big Ten opponents and then they go and lose the first game of the Big Ten tournament, but a 51-46 defensive battle. So they were very close to basically continuing a winning streak that none of us saw possible. But what do you think Northwestern can take away from this season? Obviously, they did not have the season they wanted to have, but that 3-0 start in Big Ten play was certainly a surprise. And then finishing out the season 3-0 in Big Ten play, granted it was against some of the bottom feeders in the league but there's still three wins nonetheless against Big Ten opponents, which is nothing that's easy to do. Right, yeah, it's it's certainly not easy to do. And, you know, I guess since we were last on air after they had beaten a one at Minnesota, one at home over Maryland, then won a, a nail-biter at home, came up with a big basket late in the game to beat, uh, you know, in the final seconds to beat Nebraska at home in their regular season finale. Uh, but then, yeah, losing to Minnesota in the opening round of the Big Ten tourney last night. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, a strange season, obviously. I mean, to win, to get three impressive wins to open Big Ten play and look like a dark horse in that conference and then to, you know, lose every other game and up until the 
last three games, um, and then to go one and done in the Big Ten tournament. Just just an odd kind of season, but you know, in an odd kind of year for college basketball as a whole. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, can probably expect improvement from Northwestern next year. I mean, they showed next season they showed flashes of of you know, firepower, offensive firepower at times, but just quite simply weren't good enough or athletic enough or deep enough to really compete in the stacked Big Ten this year. You know, Chris Collins is another coach in the Chicago area like Mike Bray who um, have to wonder about his job status, not only as of now, but but definitely heading into next season. Um, if Northwestern has him back. So, um, yeah, ne- next year will be um, a pivotal a pivotal season for Northwestern. And while you have college basketball that's in the middle of conference tournaments right now heading into the NCAA tournament, NBA returned last night from the All-Star break, and the Bulls returned to the court tonight against the uh, uh, East or the Eastern Conference leading Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, Chicago sitting at 16 and 18 right now. They're out of the, outside of the top eight at the moment, but they have the nine spot in the Eastern Conference. And with those two additional teams added for the play-in round of the playoffs this year, Chicago is very much alive in the playoff hunt. The Bulls are still looking for a signature win, which – a win against Philadelphia to open the second half would be definitely a signature win. Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are not playing tonight, so I guess that kind of takes away the whole signature win if Chicago can pull that off tonight. But what are you looking for from the Bulls the second half of the season? I know Arturis Karnasovas basically kind of said his team is now not necessarily looking to shop players anymore, and they might actually hold that or – add players to the roster considering the position in, but what are you looking forward to or what do you think the Bulls are going to try to accomplish the next couple of weeks into the trade deadline and just what do you expect the rest of the way from them? Um, well, I'm really looking forward to him to getting fully healthy, which I know we talked about, but I think that's so key to, um, you know, them being a legitimate contender in the East is finally having a well-rounded rotation um, and yeah, good, you know, it's going to be exciting to see what they do now that they're back in action. Uh, of course, shout out to Zach Levine for playing in the all-star game and participating in the three point contest over the weekend. Um, but yeah, now the second half of the season starting up and Levine's going to have to lead the way. I mean, he was, he's been playing some of the best basketball of his career, um, for the past month or so. And you know he's gonna he's gonna have to put put his team on his back so to speak, and um, continue to carry these bulls. Obviously, you know they're expected to potentially be active at the trade deadline. Could be buyers. Um, obviously, won't be sellers, but could really be looking to make a splash. Looks like they won't be getting Blake Griffin. I know we talked about that, but of course he worked out a buyout with the. Pistons and then sign with the Nets, of course. As if they needed another player, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he wants a ring, is what he wants. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the Bulls could still potentially look to add. It might not be anybody too flashy or notable, but but um, could potentially look to bolster their roster. Um, 
But, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly just looking for them to get back to being healthy and just hopefully continuing to ride um, Zach Levine's great series of great performances to wins. Just got to keep beating teams they should beat. And, yeah, they, you know, getting to play Philly without Simmons and Embiid, who, you know, had a, a COVID situation, close contact with a barber who was who ended up testing positive for COVID. So the Bulls catching a break there, um, and that's so that's a game they should win. And, yeah, that's just going to be the key f- for me for the rest of this regular season is them winning as many games as they should win, you know, not having any letdowns and just staying relevant in the East. And how you talk about health, it uh, looks like Otto Porter Jr. is going to play tonight. This will be his first game since mid-January before he went down with back spasms. There's a chance that Laurie Markkinen plays tonight. Otherwise, they expect him to play this weekend. So the Bulls are going to be fully healthy for the first time all year. And I know they're down Chandler Hutchison yet, who's still dealing with some illness issues and some nagging injuries this year. But Hutchison really hasn't made that much of an impact on the team since being drafted. So this will be the first time the Bulls are fully healthy in quite some time. And the fact that they're still sitting at 16 and 18 without – their leading scorer off the bench in Porter and without their number two scorer on the team in the marketing, it just shows you the job that Donovan has done with this group and just shows you how much the Bulls believe in what he's preaching. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so far that's really been a home run hire, and it seems like players have really bought into Donovan and his coaching style, which is refreshing because the Jim Boylan era wasn't, wasn't always so great in terms of players being on the same page with the coaching staff. Um, But, yeah, it's, you know, it's – things are looking promising. I mean, obviously, the Bulls should still – should certainly expect to make the playoffs. Um, You know, we'll just have to see if they keep on winning games that they should win and then stay in, in the thick of things. And you have the Chicago Bulls who are still battling for a playoff berth. You also have the Chicago Blackhawks who are still in the middle of playoff contention. Uh, The last week or so has not gone very well for Chicago. They've lost three of their last four games. Two of those came against Tampa. But what's even more concerning is the last couple games are starting to look like the beginning of the season all over again, where they allowed five goals the first four games of the year. I mean, Allowing six goals to Tampa Bay is one thing because they have the highest scoring team in the NHL. So giving up six goals to them, I can understand. But allowing six goals to a Dallas Stars team who has really been struggling since that first week of the season is kind of where the biggest concern happens at this point. Chicago has done a good job building a big enough lead where they still have a six-point cushion on that number four spot in the Central Division. But at this point, I'm starting to get a little bit concerned with how the Blackhawks have played lately, just based on what I've been seeing in gold from compared to how things were early in the year. And it just seems like the tough schedule that they are about to be, well, they're still in the middle of this tough schedule, but the tough schedule that they are in the middle of right now, this could ultimately make or break their postseason chances. They just got to make sure they can stay ahead of the teams that they're ahead of. And having that six-point cushion right now might do them very well getting through the stretch. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, having to play the 
defending Stanley Cup champions three games in a row. Uh, certainly not ideal for um, a young Blackhawks team, but yeah, I mean, you know, the the I guess the blown three nothing lead on Sunday that they end up losing six three. That's pretty brutal. Uh, but at least they got the shut the shootout win on Friday, which came after a three two loss on Thursday. Um, they won the the shootout matchup four three. Um, but yeah, and, and now we're coming off a six one thrashing at the hands of the stars, the Blackhawks are, so that's not good. But yeah, they've taken a step back, but you know, for what it's worth, I mean, it's it's against the two teams who were in last season's Stanley Cup finals. So um, you know, it's it's not too concerning, but yeah, definitely looks like um they've sort of returned to early season form in terms of giving up way too many goals, but you know, quality of opponent probably has a lot to do with it. Cause again, I mean, remember the, the first two games of the season were against the lightning Blackhawks gave up five goals in both games. So, you know, I mean, I think we know the Blackhawks aren't exactly a, a, a legitimate Stanley cup contender this year. Um, lightning and the stars, uh, likely are, um, but, um, you know, the Blackhawks will just have to work on, you know, getting, getting back in a groove and cutting down, cutting back on the amount of goals they're giving up. Cause that's a, that's a rough, rough patch. And the sad part is the Blackhawks are in fourth place in their division, but they actually hold the number six seed in the Eastern conference right now, because the top three teams in their division are also the top three teams in the Eastern conference. So it's not like, it's not like the Blackhawks are like losing to these bad teams. They're losing the very high quality opponents and the Blackhawks are close to beating these teams. Like the first two games against Tampa Bay, they were very close to beating Tampa, but it just shows you that the young side of the Blackhawks has kind of come out as of late where they're close but they're not quite there. But if they finish in fourth place in the Central Division and secure the sixth seed in the Western Conference or in the Eastern Conference, sorry, you got to like their chances of at least getting out of that first round of the postseason, knowing that they've had to face Tampa Bay eight times and Carolina eight times and Florida eight times. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, being in a stacked division should certainly help their case um, and, and help their chances of you know, potentially doing well in the postseason. Yeah, I mean, I, I really do like how the Central Division was laid out this year, and I told you about that kind of at the beginning of the season when everything started. I figured the Central Division was going to be one of the more competitive divisions in the NHL this year, mainly because you had teams like Tampa Bay and Dallas, both who were in the Stanley Cup final last year and probably had two of the better rosters coming into the season. Granted, Dallas hasn't lived up to it just because they had some COVID issues to deal with at the beginning of the season. But teams like Carolina and Florida, I never expected to be as good as they are. Teams like Chicago, I never expected them to be as good as they are. But if you, one thing that you've noticed with all those rosters, they are extremely young and talented rosters. So not only does that bode well for right now, it bodes well for the future of this game. And with ESPN re-signing a seven-year contract with NHL, 
that couldn't have come at the more perfect time for them because it seems like they're about to get involved with the NHL right when the NHL might be hitting its peak in terms of overall performance. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, and and I mean, we, the NHL did a good job of adjusting to the unique conditions with this realignment and just got to hope that, that the postseason works out and that they're able to um, – put together a legitimate playoffs and uh yeah then the espn deal is bodes really well for the league um you know gonna potentially give it more exposure on a national scale um it's you know it's kind of felt like in recent years the quote-unquote big four but you know nfl nba mlb nhl has sort of shrunk to a big three um but then this should do a good job of getting NHL the a lot of exposure and um, you know and should be good for the league for sure the the new TV deal. Are you actually are you surprised that ESPN got involved with the NHL again? I mean, I know they used to have Thursday night hockey with Gary Thorne and everything back before the lockout and everything happened, and then after the lockout happened, it seemed like. ESPN wanted to distance themselves from the NHL, which is why NBC kind of took the reins and NBC's held those reins for the past decade plus. And yes, NBC gives you great coverage, but unless you have like a more advanced cable package where you get NBC sports network, the only hockey games you can really see are just Sunday games on NBC. So I'm very happy that ESPN is getting involved again so we can get more exposure on a weekly basis but are you kind of surprised that espn got involved with nhl again knowing how quickly they got away from them after that whole lockout ordeal happened uh a little bit but i kind of feel like espn is you know recognizing that maybe the key to continuing to you know be the worldwide leader in sports is just show as as much sports as possible um because we know that ESPN's ratings on a lot of its actual shows haven't been as great as as they once were in recent years. So, um, yeah, this is just adding another piece to the pot, piece to the you know piece of the pie to the table in terms of of um, different sports that ESPN is is sort of cornered cornered the market on, or at least has a big um, share of, of airing. Um, of course, you know, this will attract a pretty big uh, regional audience, depending on what part of the country you're in. And, and yeah, it could also help to really, um, you know, increase national interest in hockey again. So it is a little surprising, but, um, you know, it, it makes sense because I think ESPN is really looking to increase its involvement with as as much broadcasting in major sports leagues as they can in major sports. I'm all for I'm all for Gary Thorne getting involved again if he wants to do it also because I loved when he used to call hockey. Yeah, yeah. I think people are really hoping that um that he'll get rehired and you know I think people are looking forward to Barry Melrose being involved with some broadcast. You know, who knows? Maybe they can get Doc Emmerich to come out of retirement. I don't know, but it looks like Jeremy Jeremy Roenick as your sideline reporter. Oh yeah, that would be that'd be interesting. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it looks like NBC, I guess, might be able to hang on to their TV rights and be the other major player in that deal. You know, there's definitely going to be another team, another uh, station involved, another network involved. So we'll have to see how it shakes out. But, yeah, the ESPN part is finalized. And, uh, yeah, it would be cool to see hockey back on ABC and ESPN. And now we'll touch on the Chicago Bears for a couple minutes here. And we're a week away from technically the NFL New Year officially turning over. And at that point, free agency becomes wide open where teams can pretty much sign whoever they want. And that'll kind of give – and now that teams know the exact salary cap figures for next year, they're kind of now in position to start doing what they need to to their roster in order to either free up space or set themselves up for – whatever moves they want to make. The first couple of weeks of the off season was pretty much the Chicago bears and their pursuit of Deshaun Watson. But now that seems to have gone out the window and it appears like it's Russell Wilson or bust at this point for Chicago. And I personally like the Russell Wilson move better than Deshaun Watson, mainly because Wilson is a more proven quarterback than Watson. Granted Watson's only been in the league for four seasons, but Wilson's made the playoffs nine of the 10 years he's been in the league and he's got two Super Bowl appearances, one Super Bowl ring. And that came back when Seattle had a great defense, which is something Chicago has. So he does kind of have the winning pedigree, which I believe Chicago needs in order to take that next step as a franchise. But I don't know if you've seen the recent trade package that the bears potentially have together to get Russell Wilson. I believe it had Anthony Miller on it. Um, Akeem Hicks and like three or four draft picks for Russell Wilson. And then I think Shaquille Griffin was also coming from Seattle to Chicago. I don't know how accurate that offer is, but if that offer is legit, would you take it if you're the Bears? Hmm. Yeah, I think I'd take it. I mean, if you can get Russell Wilson, that's a game changer, um, a total franchise changer. So yeah, I would I would be up for taking that. I mean, it's it would take a lot to to get a player of his stature, but um, yeah, I think it would be worth it. You think the Bears hang on to Allen Robinson long term now that they franchise tagged him, or do you see them potentially just franchise taking him and then trading him away at some point this offseason to clear up more money to go and get a guy like Wilson? Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think for now they're content with hanging on to him, but, you know, we'll just have to see how things come together. I mean, I, you know, it's still kind of hard to believe that the Seahawks would be willing to move on from Russell Wilson. Um, I mean, I think that'd be one of the more surprising trades in NFL history, but yeah, I mean, I think for now they're certainly probably looking to, um, I can imagine they're all going to hang on to, to Robinson. I mean, he's such a, you know, key part of that offense. And like I said, maybe the most underrated receiver in football. Like last week. Um, yeah, that could be something they look to do. Should, should that help them be able to land Robinson or excuse me, land Wilson, but, um, you know, we'll just have to, See what Ryan Pace does. I mean, he's sort of unpredictable at times, so we'll just have to see how it plays out. 
And if you're a if you're a bear fan and you're the ones that are following these storylines every day, do you rather have Watson or do you rather have Wilson? I guess from a financial side of things, I would rather have Wilson just because he's making less than Watson. From an experience and a winning pedigree side of things, I would rather have Wilson for the things I mentioned before. He's done it for his entire 10-year career. He's been to the Super Bowl. He's gotten a Super Bowl win, and he just seems to make the playoffs every year. But from an age side of things, I'd be looking at Watson mainly because Wilson probably has three, maybe four good years left in him, especially when you take into account the amount of hits that he's taken in Seattle versus Deshaun Watson probably has at least 10, maybe maybe 12 years left in him where you would be set with your quarterback for the next decade with Watson as opposed to Wilson might only get you three or four years. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, both would be great, but – yeah, I mean, you know, it it kind of depends on who would be, you know, maybe who would be on board for the longest, who would be the most willing to stick around. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, getting Wilson would – he has that winning pedigree, like you said, played in a couple of Super Bowls. Watson's still young, uh, still very young, still has – you know, some improvements that he can make before reaching his, his peak or his prime, so to speak. Uh, Wilson's obviously there now. Um, so, yeah, I think in, in the short term, Wilson would probably be a better bet getting this team to the promised land, so to speak. But, yeah, you know, the Bears, if they could get Watson, if they could get a young star quarterback, which they haven't had in, you know, forever, if they could get like a young, you know, star to have them set up for years to come, that would be, that would be huge. But, you know, also, I mean, Wilson could, could possibly be that because, you know, he's largely avoided injuries in his career. He could easily be a guy who plays into his forties. Since that seems to be a, a trend with now with star quarterbacks is playing until they're around 40 or, in Brady's case, well past 40. So, um, yeah, you know, either way would be great. I mean, it would just be nice to see the Bears for the first time in ages have, you know, a true franchise quarterback. And the thing with Watson is Watson is a very skilled quarterback. No one's going to take that away from him. And he – honestly, the Bears whiffed on him. They really should have taken him in the draft when they had the chance. And – Watson back then even said that he wanted to play in Chicago. So you can see that you can see his interest now that he wants to come to Chicago. But at the same time, you have to wonder if he not necessarily if he feels disrespected, but you have to wonder if he's thinking in his head now, like if I wasn't good enough for you four years ago, why am I good enough for you now? And just given what we've seen from his relationship in Houston, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the ownership and things like that. I don't know if I would trust Watson to come into the situation that the Bears have. I mean, the Bears have made the playoffs two of the last three years, but they still need help in other areas versus a guy like Wilson. When they brought him into Seattle, Seattle was going nowhere, and within one year he turned him to an annual playoff contender. So I would trust Wilson more with the situation Chicago has than I would do with Watson. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to wonder where his where his head's at when it comes to that, and potentially, you know, joining ranks with the franchise that passed on him, especially since Ryan Pace was the one who whipped on him, and he's still there in Chicago. Um, but you know, I mean, at the same time, if Watson's that desperate to get out of 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 Houston, you know, and and join a franchise with it at least seems to, you know, be making some pretty positive moves and not being a weird place like the Texans are, then maybe he'd be happy with it. Um, you know, again, just getting a franchise quarterback, and I guess I'm being kind of disrespectful to Jay Cutler because technically he he was, you know, what you could consider a franchise quarterback at least for – uh, a few seasons, maybe a handful of seasons, but you know, with with Cutler, I mean, there was always the question question of just how good he could be. Could he ever be able to consistently win playoff games? Was he even really that motivated to do so? Um, just you know, having somebody like Watson would be a, a next step above that. You know, a, a player who is shown to be an All Pro caliber player already you know just um just you know now through four seasons so um you know that would be a game changer and yeah you do have to wonder though that would be a factor if he would be you know uncomfortable or or kind of peeved with joining up with a team that that you know essentially disrespected him in the draft in 2017 but you know, and, and in terms of the franchises he seems to be really interested in based on the rumors that come out, I don't I don't know how interested he really is in, in Chicago. Seems like maybe um, going to the Jets, going to that big market and potentially being the savior of that franchise um, could might be at the top of his list. But, you know, you if he's that eager to get out of Houston, um, I'm assuming that anywhere that would trade for him, uh, you know, that would be able to give him some good weapons to work with, which I think Chicago has, especially now that they've, they franchise tagged Robinson. Um, you know, I think that Watson would be content with it. I have to imagine. Yeah. And I guess I'll ask this now. We've seen the Packers already start making some moves because they've they're even more over the salary cap and have more salary cap issues than the Bears have. And with the cap coming down nearly nine percent from last year to this year, they're gonna have to make more moves. Uh, the Packers have have apparently cut ties with Aaron Jones at the moment and Corey Lindsley. I mean, that's not to say that they couldn't come back, but given what Aaron Jones is probably gonna make, I highly doubt that he's coming back. If you look at the season that. Corey Lindsley just had being ranked as the top rated center in the NFL. I highly doubt he's going to come back. If the bears were able to land Wilson or Watson, do you think that would catapult them to the favorites in the NFC North over green Bay? And do you think they would be potential favorites to make it to the super bowl as long as their defense holds up and the weapons they currently have around Chicago's offensive side of the ball stay put? Yeah, more than likely. I think so. I mean, you know, they they still have so much talent on both sides of the ball. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Green Bay may still be the odds-on favorite just because of recent history. But, 
um, you know, from an analyst perspective, you might have a lot of people considering Chicago to be the team to beat. You know, I mean, it's really just been for for so many years now. Um, it seems like the ultimate missing piece for the Bears has been consistently good quarterback play. So if they finally have that, um, yeah, that could be the ultimate difference maker, and they could be the kings of that division of the NFC North. And last topic we'll touch on today is Major League Baseball as we are approaching the midway point of spring training in terms of spring training games. And you have the Cubs who have gotten off to a great start this spring. They are 6-3-1 and one so far this spring. They're in second place in the Cactus League behind the 8-3 and three Kansas City Royals. And last year the Cubs kind of got off to a little bit of a rough start in spring. They started 0-2 in when spring ended, I believe they were like six and eleven, and they were not playing nearly as well as they played this spring. I mean, spring training doesn't matter in terms of standings, but it's always good to look and see what's going on and how the team is playing. And starting pitching has been the starting pitching has been a good sign for Chicago. Their starters, for the most part, have been lights out on their times on the mound. The bullpen has kind of been up and down, but. The two guys, I should say the three guys that I've been more the most impressed with so far this spring for Chicago is obviously Jock Peterson, who has taken on the I'm coming in to replace Kyle Schwarber role by the horns and showing everybody in Chicago that you get him out of the NL West, which is known for having four pitchers ballparks and only the one hitters ballpark to Coors Field and go to the NL Central, which is all hitters parks for that matter. Jock Peterson, I think, is on the verge of having a breakout season. You got guys like Nico Horner, who every time he's up at the plate, he's making solid contact in the batter's box, and he just looks like a completely different hitter this year. And what was a question mark going into spring, I don't think is a question mark anymore, as I think the second baseman job is Nico Horner's, and he's proven that he deserves it. But the one guy that has really turned my head and has got my attention this spring is Rafael Ortega. And the guy came in as a minor league free agent with an invite to spring. And I don't expect too many people expected a lot from him. But he leads this team in RBIs right now with eight RBIs this spring, and he's hitting a 313. He had a bases loaded triple in the Cubs' first win of the spring, or the Cubs' second winning in the spring. He had a walk-off grand slam against Oakland earlier this week, and he continues to play well this spring. And if when you look at some of the free agent signings that the Cubs had, like the Jacob Marisnicks and – Cameron Maben to they were expected to compete for that final bench spot right now I would say Rafael Ortega is the front runner to get that final bench spot out of spring yeah what a spring he's had um for a guy who's sort of a journeyman who's kind of hung around never really made his mark in the big leagues you know he's 29 um and and still still kicking still looking to get a, a permanent shot at making an impact in the big leagues. But, yeah, the walk-off grand slam, um, that was certainly exciting. And I, I think that sort of introduced Cubs fandom to a guy they'd probably never heard of, at least most of them, most Cubs fans. Uh, but, yeah, I, you know, so far he's looking like he could potentially be a spark plug for sure. Um, and, yeah, that's a great point you make about Peterson – you know, now being in division with with 
uh, so many hitter-friendly ballparks, all hitter-friendly ballparks. And, yeah, I mean, you know, we, you know, we've sort of alluded to the fact that that signing could really be the thing that uh, kind of salvages this this season, you know, when it looked like maybe the Cubs were content with what they had heading into the heading into spring training um, and Hoyer acquiring or uh, inking Peterson to a deal to replace Schwarber, um, you know, that could potentially be a game changer and, and keep them as a playoff team. So, um, yeah, and of course, Horner as well, definitely going to be the starting second baseman again. Um, hopefully, you know, he'll have a, a true breakout season. I mean, obviously he's shown flashes of greatness here and there, but, you know, this could be his chance to really have a – because this will be his first full 162-game you know, season as a Cub. So um, hopefully he'll get into a groove early on, and and uh, that could really make a big difference for this lineup is having him hitting consistently well because we saw – uh, how much of an impact he had when he was called up late in the 2019 season and, and had that span where he was knocking the cover off the ball. So um, that's going to be something to keep an eye on. And I've, I've always, I've always admired the Cubs approach when they've been at the plate. Like a lot of people want to complain about the strikeouts and things like that, but the Cubs have not been, afraid to take walks either they seem to rank near the top of the national league every year in walks so they're like yes they strike out a lot but they're also a very patient team that seems to work the count and sometimes i think that is their problem because if you watch a lot of their games from last year and even going back to 2019 they were very patient early on in the count and a lot of time the best pitches they would see in that at bat were the first couple of that were the first couple in the sequence, and then after that, they kind of expanded their zone. And now you hear guys like David Ross say he wants the Cubs to be patient, but less patient and more aggressive. Where if they like the first pitch in the sequence to hit, take a rip at it and see what you can do. Do you kind of think that going not necessarily completely away from a patient approach, but do you think the Cubs being more aggressive early in the count might actually help them get back to being the offensive team that we all expected them to be yeah. years ago. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I would assume so, you know, something needs to change obviously. And that would, that could be a, a good method methodology. There is to be more aggressive early in counts, you know, this, I mean, the ultimate bugaboo for me is it seems like there have been so many, situations and close games against, you know, good teams and good pitching in recent seasons where the contrast between the approach at the plate, you know, in the early innings and middle innings is significantly different than the approach in later innings when it's just like hacking away at everything, desperate to swing for the fences and, you know, maybe just establishing a more aggressive approach overall. Um, could help, but I mean, also at the same time, I mean, I, I, I would hope that, you know, they'll show improvements in, um, getting walks. I mean, obviously drawing walks, you know, obviously they, they only have but so many players who are so many hitters who are actually good at drawing walks. Um, so that's something to, to really hope for this year is an improved, um, 
you know, approach at the plate in terms of taking bad pitches, but also at the same time, yeah, they could certainly uh, benefit from being more aggressive, especially in the early and middle innings. And then the last thing I'll touch on with the Cubs here before we'll switch to the White Sox for a couple minutes. When you look at the way the Cubs lineup has been constructed the past couple of years, they've struggled to find the leadoff hitters and stacks their fall or left. And right now it appears that Ian Happ is going to be the leadoff hitter this year, which given the season that he had last year, he's fully earned it and he very well should be the leadoff hitter. But then you look at the rest of the lineup. I mean, Chris Bryant's been hitting number two most of his career. Anthony Rizzo's been hitting number three most of his career. And Chris Bryant has had really good seasons hitting out of the number two spot. But hitting that high up in the lineup a lot of times takes away his RBI opportunity. So going back to 2019, he had 32 home runs, but he only had 71 RBIs because most of his home runs were solo shots. And what from what I've seen this spring, just from – a specific amount of hitters on the team and just because I've watched every spring game so far. So I've pretty much, I've kind of dove into a lot of things that people may have not thought about at this point, but I think Chris Bryant is better suited to hit number four in this lineup to maximize his RBI opportunities. I felt that way for years, but I didn't want to change anything right away. Just given the amount of success he had at the two spot early on, but I think the perfect number two hitter behind Ian Happ at this point is Horner. And it's basically for what I've seen this spring. Not only is he making solid contact, but he's being aggressive. And if you have a guy like Ian Happ that's going to have a high on-base percentage and take his walks and get on base, you're going to want a contact first guy behind him like Nico Horner to move him to second base, to move him to third base. And then that can set the table for the guys like Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, and everybody else behind him. Yeah, that's true. You know, we'll just have to – those are great points. We'll just have to hope that Nico's up for it and able to, you know, consistently hit. Because, I mean, he really didn't have a single stretch this past season where he was consistently hitting well. So, um, that yeah, that could potentially be something that, you know, makes or breaks their season is is how well he's able to do um, in terms of, you know, consistently getting on base. Uh yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a sort of live and die by, you know, Hap, Javi, uh, Bryant, and Rizzo situation. But, you know, Nico could could really be the X factor in that batting order. Contreras, too, obviously, is pivotal. And then, well, Hayward. Yeah. And then, last thing we'll touch on today is the White Sox. And, I mean, you talk to. A lot of experts, you talk to a lot of analysts, and a lot of analysts have already penciled the White Sox in as representing the American League in the World Series without even the season starting. And when you look at them on paper, you can clearly see why. They were the most aggressive team in free agency last year in terms of adding to their offense. They were the most aggressive team in free agency this year, adding to the pitching rotation. I mean, the Padres were aggressive, but they were aggressive in the trade market as opposed to free agency. But now you have the White Sox sitting at one and six this spring. They're in last place in the Cactus League. And the record is one thing. Obviously, like I said, spring training doesn't matter in terms of wins and losses. But it's the way the entire lineup looks right now. And for a team that is predicated on just mashing the baseball and just embarrassing pitchers by hitting endless home runs, they are not hitting the home run ball at all. And a lot of their big hitters aren't even hitting 200 in. Yes, it's spring training, and I understand that. But you're playing in Arizona, 
the Arizona area of spring training is known for the baseball just flying out of the yard. And for this team to have this much, this much trouble early on, it's got to be a little bit concerning for White Sox fans, especially when you saw how damaging that lineup could be last year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not too concerned. You know, it's spring training, and this is a team that is probably just ready to get done with spring training. I mean, they're ready to get on the road to the World Series. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not too concerned with the firepower the, the that they're going to bring to the table when they step up to the plate. I mean, I expect – home runs of plenty for that team for the White Sox this year. You know, even with the modified baseball is supposed to cut down on home runs. I still expect plenty of home runs from the White Sox and plenty of power hitting. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, this is a team with a new manager and um, some new key players and maybe they're just sort of slow to the draw, but um in, in spring training so far, but yeah, I'm not too concerned. And last thing I'm going to touch on quick before we um, sign off for this episode is I just got a ESPN alert regarding the situation with Duke right now and how everything affects the ACC tournament. Well, if you remember at the start of the show today, we were talking about how the NCAA basically said as long as a team has five healthy players, they will be be able to participate yes. in the NCAA tournament. That is okay. not the case for the ACC. ACC has announced that if any COVID-related problems happen during the NCAA tournament, they are to forfeit that NCAA tournament game, and it's not going to be the same rule that applies for the Wait, NCAA. Wait, you mean during the ACC tournament? No, like, so because of the ACC protocols that ACC has put in place during the year, when the NCAA oh, tournament okay. starts, any ACC team that makes the NCAA tournament, if they have one positive COVID test on their team, their tournament oh, is done. They don't get the benefit of playing with – they don't get the benefit of playing with the five players. Okay, like well, the that NCAA explains season. why Duke was so quick to just say their season is over then, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, because if Duke would have somehow gotten in on Selection Sunday, they would have been able to play with however many healthy players they had based on what the NCAA decided last night. So if they would have had one person test positive, but then they had to quarantine like four other people for like close contact, they still could have went to the NCAA tournament with an eight-player roster. But because of the ACC protocols, they're not allowed to. So any team in the ACC from here on out – any team in the ACC will have their season basically canceled if a positive well, test if that happens up. to Clemson, I'm going to be very, very angry. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's just one of those things you just got to get through it. I mean, I think I've said this before. College sports really won't feel like normal college sports until probably until football season starts. I mean, it's, it's just we just got to get through. Say that again. Well, even that. I mean, how normal is that really going to be? We're still probably going to be dealing with with COVID in you know May and May and June. I just, I don't know. I just feel like it's not really going to feel completely normal until college football season kicks off. But you know, hopefully there just won't be any any serious 
you know, COVID issues that really affect the tournament. Because I know everybody, myself included, is really looking forward to this tournament, it seems, since we missed out on it last year. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that because that at least explains why Duke was so quick to just, you know, the, the Kevin White, the AD, and Coach K releasing statements pretty much implying their season is – or outright saying their season is over. So that explains it. Um, but yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, they would have, I think they would have definitely, I think it's safe to say they would have had to have beaten Florida state in order to get in anyway. So it'll be things we'll never really know. Like I, what the thing is, the thing is, as much as I think they, as much as I think they needed to beat Florida state, sadly, I think Mike Krzyzewski would have got the benefit of the doubt and, I hate saying it just because they don't, they don't honest, they honestly did not deserve to be there this year. But it is Mike Krzyzewski. He is the all time leader in NCAA and wins. He was one of the biggest advocates to either delay the college basketball season or put it on hold or whatever. I just, I just don't think the committee would have left him out. Whether it was, what, even if Duke got like a 14 or a 15 seed, which, if you had Duke as a 15 seed, I think every number two seed in the tournament would be scared as heck because a 15 seeded Duke team can still knock wow. off a number two seeded. Whoever, All right, well, that would be like new ground. I mean, <laughs> having a, a major conference team seated that low. Um, but you know what? I, you know what I'm saying though. Like, I think Duke would have got in regardless, just because of Mike Shashevsky and just kind of how much he tried to have the NCAA like cancel the season or put it on hold. And I think they would have just found some way to get them in. And at that point, like, yes, Duke has struggled this year, but what team in the country do you think would have wanted to see? Right, nobody. Yeah. Especially like, especially like even like a six seed or a five seed, if Duke was a 12, 11 or a 12 seed, no, you think no, any five seed would not. feel comfortable but, playing? You know, it's just what it is. Um, it's another sad tale in sports brought on by COVID. I guess we'll never really know. Uh, but anyway, thanks for sharing that. Explains things. By the way, before we close out, shout out to Loyola, of course, winning the MVC tournament yeah. over the weekend. Um, probably, probably, in my opinion, locking up a top five seed, maybe even a number four yeah, seed. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, this team is in. better than the team that made the – that got to the final four. I think by pretty much every metric, this team is better, more talented, right. more veteran. I think the only difference with that final four team is they were more battle-tested because they had – a very difficult non-conference schedule that year, which prepared them for the NCAA tournament versus this year's team. They're not quite as battle tested because they mainly played pretty much an all conference schedule with a couple non-conference games mixed in here and there. So they don't have like the close games and they don't have like the competition that they had back when they had the final four run. But from a talent side of things, if this Loyola team made a deep run to the elite eight or the final four, no, I don't think anybody would be not. surprised. Be surprised. So, Congrats to them, and maybe Drake will get in that large. You know, the thing with Drake is they've been playing without arguably their um, best player, their leading scorer, Shinquan Hemphill, um, since February, suffered a, 
a serious injury that they were um, hoping he would be able to return from, a, a foot fracture. They were hoping that he would maybe, maybe be able to return from in the NBC tournament. He was originally hurt in early February, but uh, he wasn't able to come back, but should maybe be able to play in the turn in the NCAA tournament. So we'll have to see if the Drake gets an at large. So, you know, there could be two teams out of the NBC in the big dance, but we know Loyola will be there and, um, you know, I've got to root for him. Yeah. Illinois will be there. And with, with Duke and some of these other teams now, Oh, maybe that makes things easier yeah. for Drake. Then, but we'll find what I'm saying after selection Sunday and, with that, Cole and I are going to sign off for today. Uh, we'll be back next week, I uh, believe, on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we should be able to, to do it on Wednesday. Yeah, so we'll be back next Wednesday, and we'll basically probably dive uh, dive a lot into the NCAA tournament next week because the brackets will be out. The first half of the play-in games will be taken care of, so we'll pretty much have an idea of what the bracket will look like, and maybe we'll even make some Final Four predictions on next week's show. For sure, for sure. Looking forward to it. But take care, Cole. Have a great rest of your week, and uh, talk next Wednesday. All right, man. You too. Talk soon.